0: The Book of Mormon prophet Jacob gives us an ancient allegory with a surprising number of modern applications. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. So grateful to have you listening today. And today's lesson is Jacob 5-7, through The Lord Labors With Us. And uh, this is the, one of, our first chapter we'll study today is the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon, the infamous olive tree allegory, which uh, a lot of people get stuck at as they're reading the Book of Mormon. They get to this chapter and they realize uh, they don't know what's going on and it's so long. And it's been the cause of many people uh, taking a break from reading the Book of Mormon. So hopefully uh, I'll make it a little more exciting for you today. As always, should you care to ask a question, I'd be happy to read that on the air. Send me an email at gt I want to mention a couple of people today. One is Paul Castro, who has done an amazing job uh, transcribing the first episodes of our Book of Mormon uh, study this year. And I just wanted to send a special thank you to him. Secondly, to Alex, who has uh, given me a number of insights into today's lesson, so I wanted to thank him. I asked him a question last time I saw him, and he sent me a bunch of resources, so uh, thank you, Alex. A quick word about what's going on in the world today. Uh, Last week, uh, my my bishop and stake president have uh, given us the guidance that in our ward and stake, we can bless and, and partake of the sacrament in our individual homes, Uh, because of the COVID-19 virus scare that is going on right now. And so last week, as we uh, performed that ordinance in our home, uh, it occurred to me that the ability to bless your home in this way is a lot like the oil in the lamps that are, that is described in the parable of the 10 versions. And I thought um, a lot of times people consider that this oil has to be stored up, and it's the reason it can't be shared is, is personal righteousness. Um, so the oil is obedience. The oil is the blessings of obedience, which can't immediately be shared, which is a certainly a valuable. Uh, I'm sorry, a valid interpretation. But it just occurred to me that uh, for various reasons, it's it's not advisable for us to invite everyone. Uh, I, as we, as we had our wonderful sacrament service here in our home, I thought, oh, I'd love to invite everyone in the neighborhood to come share in this wonderful spirit that we have in our home with us. And then I thought, oh, it's not appropriate for everyone to come over and share with this. In so doing, we would increase their exposure to us and our exposure to them. Uh, and so another application to me presented itself of the parable of the 10 virgins, which is that that's another way of looking at the oil is that we are each responsible for our own household. Now, there are exceptions. Obviously, we have to invite people who may not have a priesthood holder in the home, and, uh, but, but those exceptions are limited in such a way that we're still not inviting the entire ward over to our homes. We're not going into everyone's homes. Uh, these, these experiences are small by their nature, and so wherever you are, I, I believe the entire church is now participating in the sacrament this way, in limited gatherings, in homes where the sacrament is shared. And in each of those gatherings, all of the participants are responsible for creating the content, for choosing the hymns, for example, for singing, for praying, uh, for helping with the sacrament where possible, and for doing a lot more jobs than you would normally do in church rather than just attending. And so each of you is providing your own oil for those services, and you're understanding the, the whole point, the, the reason for which the prophet received the revelation for a, for a home-centered worship is because we each have to have our own, our own cruise full of oil, which will sustain us. We have to have our own spiritual means of providing ourselves with the connection with God every Sabbath day. And I imagine it won't be too long before we're back to normal. But I hope the lesson, I, I believe it's a warning, I hope the lesson stays with us, that this is how we gather oil, is we we study at home, and we create in our homes, this is the oil, is the connection with God that we create every week, every day, if we can. And the the spirit that we feel on Sunday, it will expand, it will grow and expand to fill the other days. Uh, the The service that we share in our living room will grow and expand to fill the other rooms of our home. This is the point of a home-centered gospel, a home-centered religious practice. Well, enough about the modern world. Let's get back to the ancient world. Uh, We've got a fascinating allegory to study today. Uh, One thing I want to say quickly about Jacob chapter 5 before I get into the content of it, it is a continuation from Jacob chapter 4. So the chapter divisions in the Book of Mormon, uh, you might be aware of this, they weren't in the original translation of Joseph Smith. He didn't relate to his scribes, okay, now we're starting a new chapter. These chapter divisions are a later addition, innovation into the Book of Mormon manuscript. And in the, uh, the way it used to be, four continued right on into five and into six. And so these are part of the same discourse. And... As such, it's worth going back into the end of Jacob chapter 4 and understanding the reason for chapter 5 to exist. Now, Jacob is talking to, uh, in chapter 4, he's finished with the temple discourse that he gave in chapters 2 and 3, and he's giving his commentary on it. And at the end of that chapter where he's explained his discourse, he says, look, I'm I'm led by the Spirit into prophesying, for I perceive that the Jews are going to reject. They're going to turn what should have been their chief cornerstone into a stumbling block, and uh, they're going to reject the stone upon which they might build. But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become great, and the last, the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. So the question that Jacob has is, how is it possible that ever after having rejected Christ, how can they ever build upon it? Well, behold, my beloved brethren, he says, the last verse of Jacob 4, I will unfold this mystery to you. So the context of Jacob chapter 5 is important, and the context is this. Jacob is trying to teach how it is that the Jews, having rejected Christ, can ever build upon him and make him a sure foundation. So Jacob, as we read Jacob 5, we should keep in mind that it is meant to answer this question. Now another thing, this chapter is quoted whole from the scriptures that Jacob has. We can presume from the, uh, a chapter that is written or engraven on the plates of brass. Jacob cites this as a chapter from the prophet Zenic. I'm sorry, uh, from the prophet Zenus. And so I want to mention a few things uh, about Zenus that have been mentioned already in the Book of Mormon. Um, first of all, after both after uh, Lehi's vision and after Nephi's vision, Zenus is mentioned. So uh, indirectly. In those in those two cases, but then later on, uh, Nephi explicitly mentions Zenus, and later on in the Book of Mormon, Alma also mentions Zenus. It's worth understanding who Zenus was before we dive into the content of Chapter Five. So one of the things that Lehi says after he has his dream, he says uh, that Israel will be likened unto a tame olive tree that will be scattered and broken off all around the world. Now at the time, uh, Lehi did not mention the name of Zenus, but he says that the house of Israel be likened unto a tame olive tree that will be scattered across an entire vineyard. So it's obviously a reference, a direct reference to the content that we have today preserved as Jacob chapter five. But at that time, Jacob chapter five didn't exist. So Lehi was obviously referring to some old chapter, some scriptural analogy that everybody knew. And when Nephi has his vision as well, one of the questions his brethren ask him, and this is in 1 uh, Nephi chapter 15, they say, well, what, is it, what did our father mean about the tame olive tree? And Nephi says, don't you understand the scriptures? The, and he explains to them what we're going to talk about today. He gives them a little bit, a little taste of the lesson that Jacob chapter 5 teaches us, this, this olive tree allegory of Zenus. Now, who was Zenus? Um, one of the important things we know about Zenos from Nephi as well, is that Zenos is a man who prophesied extensively of Jesus Christ, who talked about how the Messiah that was known unto the Jews, that was promised unto the Jews, was going to also be their Redeemer and their God. So he is the one who drew the, the line directly between the Holy One of Israel, uh, Jehovah, and their, the Messiah, and said these two are one and the same that God himself will come down and condescend to live among us. Zenus is the prophet who made that the most clear. And the point that Amulek would later go on to make is he says, look, Alma mentioned Zenus, but also Zenic prophesied according to Jesus Christ, but Moses prophesied according to Christ. In fact, no prophet has ever spoken who didn't speak about Christ. So Zenus wasn't the only one, but he seems to be one who made it most explicit. We're gonna talk a little bit about Zenos before we get into the, the content of chapter five. We learn about Zenus in Alma chapter 33. So Alma's talking to, at this point, he's talking to the Zoramites. And if you remember, the Zoramites are apostates. And he talks to them in verse three, he says, do you remember to have read what Zenos, the prophet of old has said concerning prayer or worship? And then we get a, a surprising number of insights from this teaching uh, from Zenos about prayer, he talks about praying so that it, while he's in the wilderness, he talks about praying so that God will hedge up the ways of his enemies. He talks about praying so that when he uh, is in his fields, and we we learned that who Zenos was was one of the wilderness prophets that are so common in the Old Testament. Uh, for a number of insights along these lines, I recommend a talk to you. It's by uh, Hugh Nibley. It's called Rediscovery of the Apocrypha. And if you listen to part two, the whole first half of that is about the prophet Zenos, and what we can learn about him not only from uh, the this 33rd chapter of Alma, but also from Jacob 5 and from some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I recommend that talk. That is to be found on the speeches.byu.edu website. Um, so you can just you can just look for that Hugh Nibley rediscovery of the Apocrypha. But he talks about how it's obvious from these verses in Alma 33 that Zenos was a prophet that had been ejected from Israelite society. And the probable reason was he has been prophesying, as we can see in Jacob chapter 5, he's been prophesying to them about the fact that they've rejected their own Messiah. They have walked away from the Lord's statutes, and what they want to do is simply obey the law of Moses as it's been given to them. They want to obey Past prophets, but they don't want to listen to today's prophet, who's teaching them about Christ, or perhaps te- telling them to repent. Whatever it was that Zenus was teaching them in uh, his individual message, his customized message for the people of his time. We don't know exactly when that time was, by the way. Uh, they were rejecting that message, and so he was forced to be in the wilderness. And then it seems apparent from these verses in Alma that then. Uh, God, he says to God, thou Thou art merciful unto me, and when I've been cast out and despised by my enemies, and then thou turned my enemies into friends, and then I've been cast out again. And so we can get a little picture of the life of Zenos, that he was somebody who is repeatedly rejected by his own people. And then we can surmise by the lessons that we know he taught as to why that might have been. Why is that important? Uh, it'll become a little more apparent as we, as we Dive into the content of today's lesson, but uh, it's just it's just good to get uh, a background on who Zenus was. So, what is Jacob chapter five? Um, this is a, an allegory about a man who he's a husbandman, as you might as you might call a person who looks over an olive grove, and he has one tree specifically that is so valuable that he wants to get the fruit from it. But the problem with the tree is that it's, it's old and it's in a state of decay. It's about to fall apart. It's really interesting if you've ever traveled to the Holy Land. There are trees in this exact state uh, in the what they call the Garden of Gethsemane, which is right at the base of the Mount of Olives between that and the old city of Jerusalem. There's a, there's a Catholic church there called the Church of All Nations. And alongside it, adjoining that church, are a couple of olive groves and one of which they, they termed the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's not known, obviously, whether this is the exact spot, but there are very, very old olive trees there, and you can kind of see that uh, what it looks like to have a tree that is so old, but you know its roots are still active because there are just a few new shoots coming out of it every year. But by and large, it's a huge, thick trunk with just a few branches that are still alive. But that tree is so valuable because you know that it is going to produce fruit that is well established. The line of the fruit, the, the type of fruit that it would bear would have uh, withstood the test of time. And these trees are heirlooms in their culture. A grove of, of olive trees would be passed from uh, father to son for generations upon generations, and they would consider it to be a price a a well-established tree that bears fruit every year it would be worth its weight in gold. Uh, it would be beyond the price of gold. You could not get anyone to sell that kind of a grove because they cannot create it afresh just by working at it. You, the only way you can do it is by having something that, that would age and age and age. And that is the position that this husbandman is in. He goes out and he looks at his tree and he sees this valuable resource is going to die. Now, w- with that understanding, as you read this chapter, you can understand, you can see, you can begin to feel how much this husbandman loves the tree. Um, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. At one point, he says, oh, "You know what? This tree—it does nothing but bear this bitter fruit. I want to get rid of it. Let's let's dig it out and burn the whole thing." And his servant says, "No, let's let's try one more time." And he says, "You're right." Immediately, you know, he's frustrated in a moment, and uh, but immediately you realize he didn't really mean it. He's frustrated, and then he immediately says, you're right, we're going to try again because I love this tree so much. I love the fruit that this tree gives me. It is so important to me. Uh, I'm willing to do anything it takes. I'm willing to spend all my time out here digging around this tree. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to prune it. I'm going to care for it. And so that's, to me, the number one message that stuck out to me of chapter five is how much this husbandman cares. He loves this tree. He will do anything to preserve it. All right, I'm going to relate to you in very quick terms the, the narrative of Jacob chapter five, and then we'll go into what it means. So the first thing is the tree is getting old and he looks at it and says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna nourish it and I'm gonna see what would happen. So he, he makes his labor for this year. I mean, these trees grow in seasons and then there's a winter and a summer. So for this year's labor, he prunes it, he digs around it, he, he fertilizes it, as they call it, he dungs it. And then he gets a little bit of uh, new branches. But the main top, which is everything but the branches, it begins to perish. It doesn't mean the the very top of the tree, there's like a bottom and a top of the tree. What it means is uh, all of the branches that have leaves and fruit. The main top thereof begins to perish. So he sees this and he says to his servant, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. So I'm really sad that I should lose this tree. But um, so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to graft in branches from a wild olive tree. And if we can get the sap flowing, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, I'm adding my own words to this story so that you can understand exactly what he's trying to do. If we can get the sap flowing from the roots to the branches, that will revivify every part of the tree. And these branches are not, they're not vital enough to pull that sap through the tree. And they aren't producing, you know, in in modern terms we might say the leaves aren't producing enough uh, photosynthesis to, to give the tree the food that it needs. So what we need are some sort of more vital branches that would bring this tree's roots back to life. So let's find the wild olive trees. Now understand, the reason a tree is wild, the reason an olive tree is considered wild, is because it's of a variety that is not cultivated, it's not popular for cultivation, because the olives are bitter. They don't taste good, they look like olives, but you can't get good olive oil from them and you can't eat them. So they're really good for nothing. They actually are considered like weeds, however, genetically, they are compatible with um, and by genetically, what I mean is you can actually, and if you've never, if you're not familiar with the process of grafting, you can actually cut a branch from one and cut the branch off the other and you can join them where those two raw areas uh, meet. The trees themselves will create a new bond. They'll, the bark will grow around it and it's as if the one branch was always in the other tree. That's how grafting works. But the, but the two branches that are joined together have to be close in, genetically the trees have to be similar and if you make that bond correctly and if those trees are and if that new branch is seeded correctly uh, s e a t e d then a new bond will be created and that uh, the sap will flow freely into that new branch and then it will be as if it was always part of that tree it's it's a very strange thing you obviously can't do it with animals but you can do it with plants you can join one plant to another plant and have the roots of one feed the branch of another. So what he says is, let's br- let's bring these roots back to life by putting some vital branches into this tree. And so they do just that. Incidentally, we're now uh, around verse eight of chapter five. At the same time, he says, I'm going to take some of the branches of this good tree, and I'm gonna take them and spread them out so that I can preserve the, the line of this tree, the kind of fruit that it gives me, uh, what we today would consider the genetic material of this tree, I'm gonna keep it alive so that even if these branches were to die, then I would have some of this fruit. Now there are two kinds of grafting. This is a, a side note, Not we're not talking in Jacob chapter five anymore. There are two kinds of grafting that are described here. One is typical grafting. Now today we still use the word grafting to describe this process, however, Part of what this husbandman is doing is uh, the Lord of the Vineyard is he is doing what is called cutting, uh, rooting a cutting. So a cutting of a tree is cutting off the last, let's say, twelve to eighteen inches of a branch, or thirty to forty-five centimeters. And you have a branch that is about that length, and you take off some of the leaves along the bottom of it, and you just put it, you put the cut part into the ground. And then you fertilize, you put it in a certain kind of soil, you do it at a certain kind of year, you fertilize in a certain way, and you take explicit care of this cutting. And if you do that and you water it just the right amount, it gets just the right amount of sunlight, and if you've chosen the ground carefully, then that cutting can actually grow roots and become a tree of its own. So that's not grafting as we would consider it today. However, in ancient times, this was one and the same thing. You were taking part of a tree and making it a new tree. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to graft wild branches into this valuable tree to preserve the roots. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to take the branches off of the good tree that he loves, and he's going to take cuttings and make new trees from it so that he can preserve the genetic material. So he's preserving this tree in two different ways. Now, um... Uh, well, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about the some of the difficulties in language of this chapter. And I think it's it's a wonderful, some wonderful insights to be gained there. Um, but so we're back in Jacob 5 again. So uh, he instructs his servant to go do some of these things and to help him with, with some of this, uh, this work. But he alone takes the branches and takes them in, into what is described the nethermost parts of the vineyard. So hidden parts of the vineyard. Now what nether means is low. And the idea that you get from that is that this valuable tree is in a high spot in the vineyard. If there's, you know, even a rolling hill in the middle of the vineyard, then the valuable tree, what's called the natural tree, the good tree, is at the high point. And he's going to take it and he's going to choose other spots of his vineyard. And a vineyard and an olive grove uh, in the Old Testament, in, in Old Hebrew, those are two words that are actually used interchangeably. Incidentally, that's just a side note. So uh, when you say vineyard, it doesn't just mean where, where grapes would grow, but it also means where olive trees would grow. And so he's going to take these, these cuttings into the nethermost parts, the lower parts of his vineyard, which might not be as valuable or as, um, as prized a spot of ground. He's going to see where they will grow. So that's what they do. That's the first sort of the first season that we have a report of. They, they graft in wild branches, and they take cuttings of the tame tree, and they plant those. And then when they come back in verse 17, uh, after the, the, for, at the start of the next season, they can see that all of their efforts have had great success. And they go and they find these trees that have grown up from the cuttings. And what has happened is every one of them has produced some really good fruit. And in the case of the last one he planted it in the best spot of ground in the vineyard and it's it's half good and half wild and uh so the the original tree the roots were so strong they've overpowered these wild branches and the wild branches are actually growing sweet fruit it's growing good olives and all of the the natural branches that they've taken and planted throughout the vineyard they've also grown fruit now you might, if you if you look this up, you might learn that it takes between two and five years, and sometimes as many as eight years before an olive cutting can can become a tree that would actually bear fruit. So it's not just one season; it's been a long time. And in fact, uh, we get the idea of this Lord of the Vineyard that he's somebody who lives longer than a normal lifespan because the the kinds of uh, activities that he's doing with these trees and the fact that this tree is so important to him. He's lived with this tree as long as the tree's been around. The tree means everything to him because he's been with it its whole lifespan. Uh, this this may or may not be uh, a valid interpretation, but it's kind of what I'm getting, is that the, the there's something special about the Lord of the vineyard. He knows more about olives than anyone else. His servant is good at t- tending olives, but he says to him, why did you plant this olive tree here. This is a terrible piece of ground. And the uh, the Lord of the vineyard says, well, you can tell that I know what I'm doing because look at it. It just bore a lot of fruit. So I don't understand why you're questioning me. Uh, I chose this spot of ground very carefully, and I've done a lot of work on it, and obviously it worked. Now, um, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about the meanings later. We just want to get the story. So they uh, now are around verse 28 29 and a long time passes away so the first time they go back and they see that all of their labors bore fruit and the second time they go back and now what's happened to the main tree is that the wild branches have now grown so fast that they're that they're bearing wild fruit again which is to be expected right they are wild olive branches and usually the fruit uh, follows what uh, the branch the, what the genetic Type of the branch rather than the genetic type of the roots, as we would say in modern language. And so it's going to, if you take, for example, in a modern orange grove, this is how seedless oranges are reproduced. Once they, fa- once they have developed a strain of oranges that don't have big seeds in them, then they can't take the seeds out of their fruit and plant new trees. They have to graft and create seedlings, create cuttings and create trees from there or graft it into new trees. Um, so they could take a seeded orange tree, and they could graft into it the branch of a seedless orange tree. And this is how you would grow an entire orchard full of seedless oranges. Now, we all want to eat seedless oranges. We don't want to work as hard on our oranges as we do on our lemons, you might say. Because if you ever have squeezed a lemon, there are always a tons of seeds in it. And that's how oranges, historically, have always been. And yet, you and I are, uh, hopefully, most of us, I think, are, are used to eating oranges that have very few seeds in them. And that's because... Uh, Orange husbandry has grown to the point where we take the, the oranges with the smallest seeds and we keep creating cuttings from that. And then we take the oranges with the smallest seeds from that. And eventually you get a, you get a branch that has no orange. Uh, the oranges have no seeds at all. And then this can be replicated across your whole grove. And eventually you can just sell oranges that don't, you don't have to deal with the seeds. And you can reproduce those trees by grafting as, dis, as is described here. So it's the branch that carries the material, and what he noticed is, is that these branches have now reasserted their own strength over the roots, and the roots is no, uh, are no longer of this, of this amazing heirloom tree. They're no longer dictating what kind of fruit is coming out, but the branches have reasserted themselves. So now you're getting wild fruit. Well, then he goes around to look at all the seedlings that he's planted, all these cuttings that have become trees, and they have all now converted to bearing wild fruit for a reason that he can't even understand because they don't have, uh, those trees never had any wild genetic material. And yet they've also, because perhaps because of the trees that have surrounded them, but for whatever reason, they're also bearing wild fruit. And in fact, one of the, one of the trees had half wild and half good fruit, and he thought to himself, you know what, I, should, I told myself that I should cut off those wild branches, but my servant talked me out of it, and now look, the whole tree is wild. So this is the third time he's gone out, and at this point, everything's bad. So he says to his servant, he says, let's get rid of all these trees, I hate them all. Uh, my words, not his. <laughs> I hate these trees now, it makes me so disappointed and frustrated that I love these trees so much and I've worked so hard, and now what do I get? nothing but wild fruit. Now, it's not like it's a surprise to him. Uh, it, the, what we get is the the idea that we get, the impression that we get reading this chapter is that he doesn't go out there but once every two or three years to look at his vineyard. No, what happens is he doesn't know what kind of fruit is going to come out until they're fully ripe. So he's seen the, the the fruit growing, and he knows that each tree is bearing fruit, but it's not until the harvest that he learns whether it's bearing wild fruit or tame fruit. So he has been, as we learn in this chapter, he has been working every day. There's nothing that he could have done for his vineyard that he did not do. So the idea is not of a lazy lord of the vineyard or husbandman. It's a very industrious husbandman who also knows everything about cultivating olives. And yet he still gets the kind of fruit that he doesn't want. He has this extremely, extremely valuable asset, the kind of asset that families are built upon, that entire dynasties, legacies can be built upon this valuable, valuable olive grove that can can provide olive oil, food, and wood to people for miles around. It's a source of wealth, it's a source of pride, and it's a source of food. And he has spared no expense nor effort in trying to make it be everything that it could. So in verse 41, this lord of the vineyard asks himself, what more could I have done for my vineyard that I didn't do? Nothing. I could not have done a single thing um, and in verse uh, 42, he, he notices that this tree that was half good and half wild, uh, he says, This one has become corrupted, but this one was the most dear to me. This was the plot of ground that I had thought would be, the, would be very fruitful. So at this point, the, the servant pipes up and says, Look, isn't it the loftiness of the vineyard? The branches are so powerful that they're overcoming the roots, and the branches are taking strength unto themselves. And so don't you think the roots are still good? And the Lord of the vineyard says, look, we're, let's, let's cut everything down. We've, I don't want to take up this ground anymore. If we've got to start over, we might as well start over now. And the servant says, spare it a little longer. And the Lord immediately reconsiders and says, "Yea, I will spare it a little longer. That's in verse 51. For it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. So then the Lord of the vineyard comes up with another plan. Let's take the branches of all of these trees that I've planted around and I've created little copies of the original tree. And let's take some of these healthy branches. I know the genetic material is good. Let's graft them back into the original tree, this heirloom tree that I love so much. And let's see if root and branches together can't create some sweet fruit that will be valuable olives. However, we can't do it all at once. Number one, we don't have enough branches to take from all of these little trees. And number two, if we if the entire tree is one big gra- bunch of grafted branches then we will probably lose too much sap this these this is my own interpretation of, this isn't in the scripture but if we were to if we were to graft every branch at once it would kill the tree it would be too traumatic so what we have to do is graft these branches in slowly so that as one graft takes hold and the the wound of that grafting heals up then that that branch is now healthy, then we can do another one, then we can do another one, but we can't do them all at once. So here's our new plan. We're gonna take these branches we know are tame olives and we're gonna start grafting them in one by one back into the original tree. And we're gonna take some of the orig- some of the leftover tame branches from the original tree and we're going to replace the ones we take from these uh, offshoot trees. And we're going to put some tame olives into those trees as well. We want to take every one of these trees and lay up fruit for ourselves against this season, as he calls it. On the surface, it looks like they're just switching branches, but they're doing it in a calculated way. And at the same time, they're taking the wildest, most bitter branches, and they're cutting those away and getting rid of them and, and destroying them. And one by one, as they take out the most bitter branches and they keep the sweetest and they put it where the roots are strongest, they're actually managing the resources of their vineyard to the point where root and branch are matched together. And so that's the the third season and they do this labor and they call other servants. So the first servant uh, goes out and recruits plenty of help and they do this work. And then they say to each other, this is the last time. Uh, we already had one season where we had a, a ton of valuable fruit. And then we had a season where we had worthless fruit. And so we're going to work on it once more. And the Lord of the vineyard lets all of these servants know that this is the last time they'll do this. They, they have to save the vineyard this time. And sure enough, after this season of uh, intense labor, they come back and all of the fruit is good. He saved the entire vineyard. And he says, the time will come when wild fruit again creeps into my vineyard. And on the day when that happens, I'll know that I've done everything and I couldn't get rid of the wild fruit. And so then we will take all the fruit at that point, have a mighty harvest, and then the whole vineyard will be burned with fire. So that is the allegory of Jacob chapter five. It is a narrative story. It is internally consistent. And yet it it has, the the meaning of allegory is that it has a one-to-one mapping of meaning onto some other interpretation. So now we're gonna talk about what that is. First of all, from First Nephi, we already know that the house of Israel is compared to a tame olive tree. So tame olive tree means these sweet olives, the good olives, that the fruit that is useful not only to create oil, but to eat. It's the kind of fruit you would want to eat. And a wild olive fruit is the kind of fruit that is not worthwhile for getting oil from it. The oil would be worthless to eat or to burn, and it would also be bitter to eat. You just don't even want these wild olives anywhere near your olive grove. So, um, first of all, the land in the vineyard obviously represents actual land. So, the, the, the tame olive tree, in one sense, represents the place where Israel has been planted. They've been planted in a spot of ground that is choice, it's the high spot of ground, and their, their land is, the, the place, the, the physical place of this tree seems to be significant. That idea is uh, supported by an interpretation that uh, the children of Israel would have had access to Zenos' prophecies before the Exodus. There's an interesting article. I recommend it to everybody listening to this. If you want to understand uh, the background of Jacob chapter five in the Old Testament, this is an invaluable resource to you. It is by David Rolf Seeley, whom I've mentioned many times. He's, he was my uh, professor in the BYU Jerusalem Center many years ago, and John Welch. So David Rolf Seeley and John Welch, they wrote an article called Zenos and the Texts of the Old Testament. So I recommend you look that up. That is on bookofmormoncentral.org. And this is uh, about a 20-page document describing. It's an essay describing the many ways in which these uh, planting allegory or these planting imagery comes into the book, uh, to the to the book of the Old Testament, the books of the Old Testament, as if from a single source. And they sub- they give support to the idea that somehow somewhere there was likely a place where they all were drawing from because it seems like they all have understood ideas that underlie everything. The idea that there could be both a blessing and a curse in an olive grove. So the blessing would be that you get wonderful fruit, but the curse could be that you're gonna take a branch and you're gonna throw it away. You're gonna burn it in fire. And that's just the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I wish I could go into detail of everything they covered, but that's why I recommend this article to you. Uh, so it was very helpful in preparing this lesson today. Uh, so the, the, the tree is obviously the house of Israel, and the place where the tree is planted is the land of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 15, the, the song of the sea, if you've been listening for a couple of years, you'll remember we talked a bit about this, but um, if not, the Israelites, as they are traveling out of the the sea, the Red Sea, it's been split for them, and then they've walked through it. And as they come out of it, you, you will have seen this also depicted in that cartoon, um, the Prince of Egypt. They sing this very song from, the, from Exodus chapter 15. Um, they sing the song of the sea, which is a, a hymn of praise unto Jehovah. And one of the images from that hymn is that God will plant us in a high place in his holy mountain. And that, that is very in line with what's going on in Jacob chapter 15 here, that the Lord of the vineyard has planted this tree in a high place in his, in his most cherished plot of ground. But it also, uh, it's not just a plot of ground. It, now, in my opinion, I'll give you my interpretation on what uh, the, the, the roots mean and the place means. But on one level, the, the place where the trees are planted actually does have to do with places in the earth. So as um, the Lord of the vineyard scatters this genetic material from this tree, he scatters the branches of the tree, um, it's symbolic of the scattering of Israel. So we might think of one of the branches planted in a poor plot of ground. We might think of that as the Assyrian uh, exile. And then we might think of another uh, branch that's planted elsewhere as the Babylonian exile. And we can certainly think of the last tree that is planted in the good spot of ground, we can think of that as the Nephites. Because uh, the prophets of the the people of the Nephites have been telling them now for over a generation that we have been led to a land of promise where God will only have people here who follow his word. And if they don't, they will be cut off from his presence. And that this this is a choice plot of ground above all the other parts of the vineyard. And also the support of that idea is that half of the tree, half of the fruit of this tree was wild and half of it was was good fruit, was tame fruit, were tame olives. And so symbolizing the Nephites and the Lamanites. So that that one plot, that one tree symbolizes these people. So different trees that are s- scattered around the vineyard, they symbolize different examples of exile among the Israelites, from the Israelites. So far, uh, there's nothing here that's uh, any different about this, of the interpretation that I'm giving you to what you might just guess from reading this. Um, and so that, that is the meaning, right? That God is, go, is trying to preserve the worship of the Israelites. So what does the fruit mean? So I'm going to give you my interpretation of what all these things mean. First of all, Uh, not only of the original tree, not only is it the land of Canaan, but it's also, in my opinion, the trees that these branches are growing on, the roots, it's doctrine. So God wants, if you think about the branches as being people, when he he says these, these branches are wild, they have to be cut off and hewn and thrown into the fire. They have to be hewn down and thrown into the fire. This is obviously judgment of some sort. So the plants of the vineyard can be blessed or they can be cursed by the Lord of the vineyard. He can work on their behalf, he can prune them, he can dig about them, he can dung them or fertilize them, or he can cut off the branches and throw them into the fire. So his, his labors and his judgments are very important as to what happens to these branches. The branches are the people. And so then what is the fruit? What are the olives? Well, if it brings forth good fruit, something that's pleasing unto God, it's obviously their works. It's their choices. It's the choices that they make. Now, the nourishment that the trees get, as you, as you might recall, in verse 18, it says, Behold, the branches of the wild tree have taken hold of the moisture of the root thereof, that the root thereof hath brought forth much strength. And because of the much strength of the root thereof, the wild branches have brought forth tame fruit. So this moisture, this nourishment that the branches received from the roots, this is grace. This is the grace or the love of God, the very fruit that uh, this moisture and the fruit of the, uh, the tree of life, the vision of Lehi, are one and the same thing. This is the grace, the undeserved gift of God. And the connection, right, the, the, the roots to the branches, these roots are connected to each other. This is fellowship. This is fellowship or some sort of worship. Now, in my opinion, the, the combination of the branches, the roots— and the nourishment, this is what we might call today religion. So this is Zenos trying to teach what a practice of religion really is. This is what it takes for God to have a righteous people on the earth. And, And all of those aspects together, they work together to create religion. And religion, if you think about it, what God wants from people is to make good choices, is to make choices according to the law of happiness. And in order to do that, he has to teach it. Now, the number one limitation on God's power, the number one thing that, is, that keeps him from having righteous people on the earth is the same thing that is the number one uh, goal of God, which is our agency. So the, the choices that God makes to influence us, they all are bound by our agency. God will never, never, this is his utmost commitment. He will never violate our agency in any way. And Satan will try to, And God, that is also God's commitment is that he will not allow Satan to violate our agency. And so the the thing that God has to do in order to have a righteous people on the earth is he has to first find someone who's willing to make choices that are good enough that he can inspire that person. So he has to have a prophet who will bring forth almost out of nothing, you might say, who will bring forth the teachings, the kind of doctrine that will lead people to do what's right. And once he establishes that doctrine, then he's done a lot of work. This has taken a long time. It's like creating an olive tree. You can't do it out of nothing. You You have to have somebody somewhere who's righteous enough that he is willing to ask God, God, what would you have me do? And then God is willing to, is able finally to pour down knowledge into this person and then uh, people who are taught by that person. And eventually the the knowledge expands until it can produce an entire people that are willing to obey God for no other reason that they want to, and that they've been taught to do it. This takes a lot of work and a lot of cultivation, a lot of uh, fertilization, and it takes a lot of pruning, and it takes a lot of winnowing down. It takes a lot of trial and tribulation. It takes winters and summers. And this is why this is a perfect analogy. And it's how we can see, uh, this is Zenus not only teaching how God will deal with his people, but he's showing us, in this analogy, he's showing us why God chose the people of Israel. It's not because he cared about them more than the other people of the earth. It's because He has to have the free agency of man cooperating with his own agency in order to teach people how to do the right thing. Now, it was never intended. This is is one of the main lessons of the Old Testament. It was never intended that God would limit his, his grace to the people of Israel. It was always intended that they would be what he called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what do priests do? They are intermediaries between God and man. So they were always intended to be people who would spread the truth. They were to be an example of what it was like to worship God and receive his blessings. And from there, everyone would witness this and come unto them, be grafted in, uh, according to the imagery that we're dealing with. God always wanted to graft everyone into this tree, but he had to start with a tree. He had to start with a people that he could call his own. He had to start with the people who were willing to receive revelation and act upon it. So the first thing that has to happen is there has to be correct doctrine. But there also has to be, the, and that, those are the roots, but there has to be nourishment flowing through these roots. And that nourishment, that moisture, that is the grace of God. So the doctrine has to be based in the truth. And if the truth is there in the doctrine... Then the grace of God flows from the roots up to the branches, which are the people. And the people, if they receive this nourishment, then they produce works that are according to the teachings of the doctrine. And these works, because they are in line with the law of happiness that God himself decreed, then the fruit is sweet to God, and he lays it up to himself against the season. He finds that these people are worthy of all of the work that he's put into them. And that is, a ju- that is a form of judgment that is passed on them, that they have brought him joy instead of sorrow. And rather than pluck them out of the tree and, and throw them into the fire, then he will continue to prune and to nourish the tree and to care for it using all of the skill and strength and knowledge that he has. So these are the outcomes that can come out for the tree. So those are some of the meanings of what's going on. The roots are the doctrine. And the sap, the moisture in the tree, is the grace of God, is his love. And the people, the branches of the people, and together, uh, the the branches being grafted into this tree, the, the branches being close to each other and providing strength to the tree and the tree providing strength to them, that association, that connection is fellowship and it's worship and it's the practice of true religion. And so these three things together, they create what is known as religion. What God wants from us and what he creates with us is the practice of religion. Now, religion in modern world has become sort of a dirty word. People uh, say, oh, you know, I believe in spirituali- spirituality, but I don't believe in religion. And what this allegory is teaching us is that religion includes not only the, the true doctrine of God, the grace of God. Most people would, would get rid of everything but grace. And they would say, look, God talks to me. I can go out and be with God whenever I want. I can connect with him. And that's all I need. Well, that is great. To have the grace of God is wonderful. But God also wants you to have his true doctrine. You aren't providing fruit to God if you just rely on his grace. You don't have any roots to preserve the moisture. When the, when the moisture stops, when the rain stops, you'll die if you're a branch that's depending on moisture that's just lying around. If you want to have deep roots, and if you want to have enough of a foundation that when there's a drought, you can still bear fruit and be pleasing unto God, you need not just roots, but you need this moisture that can continually come up from the root system. And then you need the kind of fellowship, you need the kind of tree that is going to keep the roots healthy. This doctrine has to be preserved By a population of people and they have to pass it on to their descendants and in so doing you've created a religion that is vital and alive and has the ability to return to god the the return on his investment of labor in this tree of fruit and those actions that are right actions in accordance with his doctrine that is the fruit that god wants this is such a powerful allegory for this reason because it teaches the importance of religion and it also shows us the reason that god would limit, as you might say, or he would focus his attentions on one nation, especially early in the history of the world, in the civilization of the world, so that their their doctrine, their religion could spread throughout the entire world. And this is the process that God is performing in this very chapter. He's taking the doctrine, and he is spreading it around the world. He's taking these roots, and he's trying to plant them in as many places as he can. And if he can... He'll get fruit from those places as well. This tree is not the only thing that's important to him. It's the doctrine. It's the fruit of this tree. And so he's willing to take the genetic material from that tree and have it supply a different root system if he has to. But this is the doctrine that is the most important to him. It's, it's indispensable to the fruit. And this, this tree, this heirloom tree, cannot be lost. He loves it too much. Now, there's an important chapter I want to draw your attention to. And that is uh, Romans chapter 11. Now in Romans 11, Paul is talking to the Gentiles and he is also pulling from a similar allegory, a similar metaphor that all of these uh, other Old Testament chapters have pulled from. So Romans chapter 11, verse 15. When the Jews were rejected, uh, I'll read it in the King James Version first. If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Now I'm going to distill this verse for you. If the Jew, when the Jews were rejected, all other people were changed from God's enemies into his friends. So when God took those branches that were wild, the, he, he noticed that his tame tree was bearing wild fruit. When he cut out those branches, then every other branch in the vineyard was given sudden hope. I now have the possibility of being grafted in to that wonderful tree and bearing the kind of fruit that I've always wanted to bear. Or otherwise spoken, when they were rejected, all other people were changed from God's enemies into his friends. Paul, in this in this chapter, he, he makes extensive use of the olive tree analogy. Uh, and, and then he says, what shall the receiving of them be from? but life from the dead? So um, he's saying to the Gentiles, look, you shouldn't, number one, you shouldn't think you're better than the Jews because they were cast away from the same root that you're now being grafted into. So if you think you're better than them, what'll end up happening is you'll you'll have the same kind of fruit that they had. They were plucked out, you can be too, you should be humble. And if they're ever brought back and grafted back in, then that will be life from the dead. So that will be a cause for rejoicing. So in none of these, instances, do you, the Gentiles, have any cause to think you're better than the the Jews? But I, Paul, have been called to preach unto you, the Gentiles, partly so that the Jews will be a little bit jealous uh, as he or envious, as he says, of all of your good fruit, of all of your success, of all of your pleasant worship, that they might be spurred on to revivify their own roots and bring back their own righteousness and start ma- bringing forth better fruit of themselves, and that they and this is one of the ways in which fellowship creates a stronger bond and creates better fruit among branches. So Paul said in verse 17, if some of the branches be broken off and thou being a wild olive tree, he's still talking to the Gentiles, were grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. Boast But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root but the root, thee. This is verse 18. So we're still in Romans 11. That was verse 18. So another another translation says this, consider this. If you're going to boast, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. And the point of that is that the doctrine of Christ gives you your nourishment in order to be righteous. You're not the ones giving righteousness to the doctrine of Christ. Uh, if you want to understand the Jacob chapter five, you've got to understand Romans chapter 11. So I would definitely recommend reading this chapter. So uh, verse 17 and 18 are sort of the center of that. Now in this chapter, he quotes Isaiah chapter 59. Now you might remember that when we were talking about second Nephi chapter one, that this is one of the probable places that I said, uh, Lehi was quoting from Isaiah chapter 59, to give his sons the message about the armor of God. Uh, This is where the verse came from. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. That's uh, Isaiah 59, verse 17. Just a couple of verses later, it says, uh, this is where Paul is quoting from. And he says the the covenant of God, the Redeemer of God, he's covenanted that he's not going to leave uh, Israel alone, but he will eventually change them. The Redeemer in verse 20. So this is Isaiah fifty nine twenty. 20. Rede- the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. So Paul quotes that and he says, eventually God is going to redeem Jacob. He's going to bring these trees that have been spread throughout the world and he's gonna graft them back into their mother tree. He's gonna bring them back to the worship of the Messiah. Now, this is a very important Uh, support for the idea that not only is that center tree the land of Canaan, but it is Christ himself. So, Zenos, as a prophet, was very, very uh, center. He was always focused on the the doctrine of Christ and teaching that the Redeemer, that the Son of God, was the way in which the Jews would be saved. And in fact, we have good reason to believe taking uh, Alma you, this is a little work that you can do on your own, but you can take Alma chapter 33, what you learn about Zenus from there, and you can take Jacob chapter five, what we learn about Jacob teaching, the uh, Zenos te- teaching the doctrine of Christ. He's basically prophesying that the Jews are gonna be cast out because they reject Christ. And you can take those two things and put them together, and then you can take the chapters from 1 Nephi, which talk about the prophet Zenos and his teachings, how powerfully he testified of Christ. And you can guess that Zenos was cast out and maybe even slain because he, and and certainly rejected of the Jews because he was so uh, consistent and so persistent in his teaching of Jesus Christ and of the fact that they would all reject him. And he prophesied that not only would they reject him, but they would be rejected of him. So I've already kind of explained that the trees, the roots of the tree, represent doctrine. And doctrine, the most important aspect of any of the doctrines of God, is the atonement, the need for the atonement of Jesus Christ. So now we'll go back to our original question. Why would Jacob take all of the trouble to transcribe one of the ancient chapters that's already found in the uh, plates of brass? Why would he transcribe that onto his small plates? This is the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon, a ton of work. Why did he do it? Uh, and he gives us the answer, as we talked about in Jacob chapter 4. He wants to explain how the Jews can build on the foundation of Christ one day if they've already rejected him. So this, the whole point of this allegory is to show that the Jews will one day again be given an opportunity to build on that foundation. And Jesus Christ, therefore, is. What happens is they're separated first from the central tree, and then they're brought back in and reconnected to the central tree. So the, the, to finish off with our interpretation of this allegory, the Nephites, the, the Assyrian exile, the Babylonian exile, all of these are separations from the original house of Israel. And then one day they'll all be gathered back in. And there will be a time when all of the fruit is good, when the house of Israel is flourishing. And this is the time of the restoration. This is the time when there is a prophet on the earth who is able to communicate with all of the different branches and s- root systems of this tree wherever they might be found and therefore they're all able to get correct doctrine and they're all being nourished by the grace of Christ and they're all being they're all participating in the fellowship of the leaves and therefore all of the trees are producing good fruit they all have the doctrine they have the the grace and they have the fellowship that requires true religion. And this is the last time these trees will be nourished in this way. And so the Lord of the vineyard now is going to take as much opportunity as he can. He's going to take advantage of this wonderful happenstance, and he's going to gather as much fruit as he can. And so he's going to bring in as many servants as he can, and, he, and they're going to labor as much as needs to be done to make sure that every fruit that comes out of this vineyard is going to be as good as possible. And this is a process. Eventually, this good fruit will fill up the entire vineyard. It has to be done slowly. The the bad branches, the wild branches are not taken out all at once. They have to be slowly replaced with good branches. But eventually, this good fruit will fill up the entire vineyard. And so that's the prophecy that we're in the middle of. Uh, God is now nourishing his vineyard for the last time. And eventually, the, the belief in Jesus will fill up the entire world. That is the prophecy of Jacob chapter 5, that eventually everyone will will have access to correct doctrine, and they will be bearing fruit to God. Their works will be good. It doesn't mean that everyone will be part of the same religion in the specific sense that they'll be part of the restored church of Jesus Christ, but it does mean that in the broad sense of the word religion, that they will be uh, bearing fruit unto God, that God will not permit people to be in the vineyard if they are not producing the kind of works that he needs to be considered tame fruit he has to have valuable fruit for himself otherwise it's taking up spot in his vineyard it's cumbering the ground as he says that could be used for a for a tame plant that would be that would be profitable to the Lord of the vineyard so that's the end of our interpretation some an, another chapter that I want to point you to so I pointed you to first Nephi 15 and I also pointed you to exodus 15 and now I want you to to point you to John chapter 15. So the Book of Mormon, the Old Testament, and now the New Testament, uh, very interesting. But this is where Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you're disconnected from me, then you can't do anything. It's only to the extent that you're being nourished by the moisture that comes from the vine that you can produce the kind of fruit that, that, that God wants to have. Uh, this is one more example of the fact that the of the idea that Israelites were very comfortable thinking about God as being a nourishing root system uh, and having planted them and being connected with them and receiving this. One more mention of uh, Romans chapter 11. I want to read you verse 17 from the New International Version. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. So that nourishing sap, it only comes in, you realize if you read this in another translation, uh, when when in the King James, when it says the, the root and fatness of the olive tree, what it's actually talking about is the nourishing sap. So this moisture that uh, that the Book of Mormon, that Jacob chapter 5 talks about, this grace of God was known not only to Zenos, not only to Jacob, but to Paul. Uh, one, more, one more thing I want to mention is that this isn't just my own idea. This is supported uh, from the Book of Mormon in First Nephi chapter 10. Nephi tells his brothers that the Jews would be, so this is uh, First Nephi 10, verses 12 through 14. The Jews would be scattered upon the face of the earth after the Gentiles had received the fullness of the gospel, then the natural branches or remnants of the house of Israel should be grafted in or come to the knowledge of the true Messiah, their Lord and Redeemer. So the, uh, the original tree, obviously the, the trees are places, but the tree is also, as Nephi says, the knowledge of, their, of the true Messiah, their Lord and Redeemer. So there are a couple of different meanings for that tree. It's the land of Canaan. It's membership in the house of Israel, but it's also knowledge of Christ. It's the doctrine of Christ. So this is Nephi telling us that the tree is, in fact, the doctrine. Okay. So now Jacob has accomplished his purpose. In verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter six is Jacob emphasizing that the, the explaining and uh, giving his interpretation, and then emphasizing that he has taught us now. Exactly how it is that the Jews, once having rejected Christ, can eventually come to partake of his blessings and build upon them, build upon him as their sure foundation. So he's the stone that they have rejected, and one day it will become their chief cornerstone. So in that, He is, this is a conscious reference, by the way, to Psalm 118, where, where Jesus Christ is talked about in that same way. So, as an interpretation and as a summary of his allegory, Jacob chapter six uh, gives us a, a very good lesson on the importance of choosing Jehovah, choosing Christ, choosing religion, and choosing true doctrine. The, in fact, the, the importance of our choices in general. Our choices are the good fruit. And the way he does this in chapter six. Now, this is a, I'm going to make another plea for you to read this essay. Uh, by David Rolf Seely, John Welch, called Zenus, and the Texts of the Old Testament. They emphasize over and over again how in this uh, vineyard imagery that's throughout the Old Testament, God is con- constantly saying, on the one hand, the blessings that come from having a, a Lord of the vineyard who's, who's nourishing you, and on the other hand, the curses that can come by having God pluck you out of your original plant and casting you into the fire. So the blessings versus the curses. And you can see that contrast throughout chapter six. All right, now to chapter seven. On on the surface, at first blush, it appears to be that Jacob has shifted gears, right? So Jacob has been given, throughout the book of Jacob, it's basically been one thing. He has talked about his uh, his temple discourse where he talked about, you remember from last week, he talked about plural marriage, he talked about pride. And then while he's given us the interpretation, while he's, um, later on, he's saying, and here are some of the things that are important to remember from the speech that I gave. Uh, And here is an important question. How can the Jews do this? It's all part of the same thing. He's given this report of his a uh, temple discourse, and then he's given his interpretation of that. He asks he asks a simple question in the middle of that interpretation, which is how can the Jews build on Christ once they rejected him? Then he gives the uh, the chapter five, the allegory of the olive tree, and then he gives his interpretation of that. It's all been sort of one lesson from from chapter one all the way through chapter six, and then now in chapter seven, it appears like oh. Jacob is now just telling us a new story about some guy named Sherem who happens to be an antichrist, but I'm going to show you. First of all, the reason that it seems that way is because it's uh, many years later, and this is narrative now instead of instructive, and it's not explicitly tied, but I want you to consider this. So briefly, I'm going to tell you the story of Sherem, and then I'm going to tell you how it is tied in. Uh, Sherem is a man who denies Christ. So anyone who does this, who says that Jesus is not the Christ or that the Messiah is not God himself, in the scriptures, that is a person who is an antichrist. Because of the book of Revelation and because of one of the other uh, epistles of Paul, we have taken, in modern terms, the word antichrist has come to mean someone, a single person, who will come in the last days and be the embodiment of all evil. The Antichrist will be basically Satan's messenger on the earth. But there is a lot more, I shouldn't say a lot more, there's a more innocuous meaning in which an Antichrist is simply somebody who preaches against the importance of believing in Christ. And uh, while it's still not a good guy, it's not, it's not the, uh, it doesn't mean the end of days, right? So Sherem is an Antichrist in that sense. And he comes around. He, he teaches. Look, uh, the, the here are Shem's teachings. The law of Moses is important, but the but the Messiah is not God. And in fact, there there will be no Christ. There's no atonement. We just have to obey God and and pay attention to the law of Moses, right? And he, uh, this is his whole his whole spiel. This is the, the entirety of his message. And it doesn't seem to be that evil, but I'm going to talk to you about why. Uh, why it is first, uh, and then what's the problem? So he finds, eventually comes into contact with Jacob and he says, look, I've been looking for you, Jacob, because you teach about Christ and I teach that there will be no Christ. And he and Jacob have a discussion. And in that discussion, the, it, it ends up that Sherem says to Jacob, all right, if there's a Christ, then show me a sign. And Jacob says, I'm not, I'm not gonna show you a sign, but if God wants to show you a sign, then maybe you'd like to be smitten. And if that's your sign... I'm not going to find some way for God to visit your destruction on someone else. So if that's your sign, then so be it. And from that moment, uh, Sherem never gets to teach any evil doctrine again at all. Now, as a narrative, this is not a very powerful lesson. And I'll tell you why. Because you and I face obstacles to our belief all the time, and God doesn't smite those obstacles As soon as we say, oh, well, if you want to be smitten, then be smitten, okay? So this is not a chapter instructing us how to deal with apostates or how to deal with obstacles to our belief. Um, In fact, if you've ever studied narrative structure or story writing at all, this this would be considered what is called a deus ex machina, or the god from the machine. Now, in ancient Greek drama, uh, one of the early techniques that they realized they were doing, it's sort of something that is recognized after the fact. But there were a lot of ancient Greek dramas, and the Greeks were the, uh, the innovators, the inventors of the play, right, of theater in that, in that sense. And quite often at the end of the play, what would happen is the writer, the playwright, would get the characters into enough trouble that they couldn't get themselves out of it. And so then on a little crane... They would bring an actor out from backstage and they would hoist him up and he would come out and he would be a god. He would represent one of the gods of Olympus, and he would say to all of the uh, assembled cast, "Here I am, I've watched you struggle with all these things. Now I'm going to fix all your problems." And this would be the way the, the play would end. It wasn't very satisfying because God would come out of nowhere and would say, uh, "Here's the answer to your problems. You don't have to change and everything's going to be great." Well, it was great for an early uh, manifestation, an early example of plays, but people have moved on since that. And, and nowadays, if you want to criticize somebody, a, a writer, you could say, oh, your ending was a deus ex machina. And it doesn't mean that literally God comes out and solved the problems. It means that somehow something that wasn't really, the character didn't really have to change. He didn't really have to face the difficulty that the story uh, presented him with. Uh, all the, his problems got resolved for him. And therefore, uh, big deal. It's not very satisfying that he didn't have to make a difficult choice. And so this is a exa- perfect example. If, if you look at this as a narrative, it's not powerful because God literally comes out of nowhere and solves the problem. So if this isn't a narrative teaching us a lesson, then what is it? Okay, that is an important question. And that is a clue to what this chapter is even doing here. It seems like it's different from the rest of the whole book of Jacob. And when we realize that the narrative isn't the point, then we can kind of fit it in. Okay, so now I'm going to tie this chapter back into Jacob chapter 5. First of all, what do we know about Sherem? In verse 4 we learn he has a perfect knowledge of the language of the people. He's, uh, it says that he, he could use much flattery, much flattery and much power of speech but it's according to the power of the devil. So he's good at flattering people, but he's good at flattering them away from God. He's prideful, we know that. And we also know he was loyal to the law of Moses. In other words, what do we know about him? He is one of the natural branches. What better example could we have for the attitude of the branches described in Jacob chapter five? Verse 37 uh, says, Jacob five says, I'm looking it up here. Behold the wild branches have grown and have overrun the roots thereof and because the wild branches have overcome the roots thereof it hath brought forth much evil fruit. And then the the servant describes one of these evil branches in this way in verse 48. He says, "Is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard have not the branches thereof overcome overcome the roots which are good? And because the branches have overcome the roots thereof behold they grew faster than the strength of the roots." Taking strength unto themselves. Now, this is where Zenos makes it clear that is the choice of the branches that actually perverts their fruit. So, this is a perfect example. Sherem is a perfect example of the branch taking strength unto itself. In other words, it's rejecting the doctrine when a branch doesn't yield the fruit uh, that the, the, the roots would indicate, uh, the, the genetic material of the roots would, would tend to send out. What that means is that, the, that a person has rejected the doctrine of Christ. He's bearing his own fruit, and that fruit is bitter to God. What better example could you have for that attitude than Sherem? So what, and, and so, here's my point. Jacob chapter 7 is not meant as a narrative to teach us how to deal with somebody like Sherem. Jacob chapter 7 is meant as an example to us of God, of the fact that God really will deal with the people of Israel the way Jacob chapter 5 says he will. And what happens to Sherem? He's plucked out of his tree and he's cast into the fire immediately. So, Jacob later on, he had a choice as to what he was going to write in his uh, on his plates. He could and and if we're reading this the book of Jacob, and we think, oh, he just wanted to relate all of his important experiences. No, it's many years later. He, doubted, he undoubtedly had many, many important experiences. But he chose to put Jacob chapter 7 here precisely because he wanted to illustrate to anyone who would read his plates, uh, presumably his own descendants, first and foremost. He wanted to show them, look, if you just read Jacob chapter 5, you need to know that God will pluck you out and cast you into the fire, and he will bless you. So what happens to the people that formerly listened to Sherem? When Sherem is struck by God to the point where he cannot raise himself, he has to be nourished by others for the space of many days. And eventually he gathers all of his former believers, his former adherents, and he renounces all of the teachings that he's given them. And he says, I'm afraid that I have committed the unpardonable sin. And then he dies. All of those people immediately repent. And what happens is that they are all brought back into the fellowship, the religion, the practice, and the doctrine of Christ. And they immediately are forgiven. So one man is cursed. Everyone else is blessed. One man is taken out and and plucked away from the natural tree and everyone else is grafted back in. This is an illustration. This is an example. This chapter is not a narrative. It is part of the allegory of Jacob chapter 7. This is one example of how this applies to us, that when we listen to people who would tend to take strength unto themselves and deny the doctrine of Christ, then we are cast out of this tree. We are plucked out of our natural tree, and we are denied the nourishing sap. But if we will repent, then we can be grafted back in. Now I want to teach you something about Sherem. If you want to understand his deception, I'm going to read to you two of the verses from chapter seven. First thing that Sherem says, uh, he's talking to Jacob. He says, you've led away much of this people that they pervert the right way of God. They keep not the law of Moses, which is the right way. And they convert the law of Moses into the worship of a being, which you say shall come many hundred years hence. And now behold, I, Sherem, declare unto you that this is blasphemy. For no man knoweth of such things, for he cannot tell of things to come. That's verse 7. Verse 9. This is only two verses later. Sherem says this. Uh, Jacob says, Deniest thou the Christ who shall come? Sherem says, If there should be a Christ, I would not deny him. But I know that there is no Christ, neither has been nor ever will be. So in one verse he's saying, No man knoweth of such things, for he cannot tell of things to come. Two verses later, I know there is no Christ, neither has been nor ever will be. Something that you need to know about people who deny Christ is exactly this. Those beliefs require just as much faith as a belief in Jesus Christ. To believe that Jesus Christ will never come is a profession of faith exactly as much as to believe that Christ will come. So that's the message of Jacob chapter seven. It is that God means what he says when he, he means exactly what he says, when he says, I'm going to nourish this tree. I'm going to preserve the fruit of it unto myself against the season. I'm going to take every branch that I can and every leaf that I can and every shoot that I can and every cutting that I can and every seedling that I can And I am going to redeem it. That is the promise of Isaiah chapter 59, that God will take, uh, he will send a redeemer to, to Zion and he will take all of the people in Jacob who are willing to repent and he will redeem them. So this is an ancient promise. It's an ancient allegory and it has an infinite number of modern applications. It is the very promise that God will change all of us, that he can take us from one nature and he can implant within us another nature, that we can have one form of worship flowing through us and that he can change that to another form of worship. If we will connect ourselves to his root, which is the doctrine of Christ, and if we will allow his moisture to flow through us, his nourishment, which is the grace of God and the love of Christ, if we will do these things, then he can help us to produce unto him good fruit. He can change our very insides, our very souls, into the kinds of people that will produce good works and make good choices forever. The powerful lesson of Jacob chapters 5 through 7, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.